Excited to talk to you again. Thanks for calling. Yes. You are listening to Psychotherapist. I'm your host, Renee, and I am here as always with my babysitter, Josh. Say hi, Josh. Hi, Josh. What we are trying to do here is make therapy less mysterious, less awkward, less scary, a little more fun, a little more helpful. So we are going to have one guest each episode. These guests are not actual clients of mine in my psychotherapy practice, but rather are people who have come to me through social media and have volunteered to call into the show with their content, whatever they would normally be working on in therapy. So what you're about to hear will be very, very much like an actual therapy session, at least the way that I do therapy, with some very obvious exceptions. Um, the most important of which is that this is not real therapy. These conversations are for the purposes of education and entertainment only and are not real therapy. I am going to meet with each guest after they've been on the show to help connect them to resources so that they continue working on whatever they bring up on the show so we're not just having people call in and open up their shit and leaving them hanging. Um, which brings me to the two disclaimers we should probably issue before we get started. The first is that we use language freely here at the podcast, adult language, just so you know. The second is that we may go into some theory to help the guest sort of navigate and understand the things that they're dealing with in their own lives. And if you hear the theory explained a little bit differently than the way that you read it or learned it, just know that that's intentional. So with that said, let's get started. So I was just going over my notes from our first conversation, and we, geez, Kelly, we covered a lot of stuff. Um, there was a lot of content. You, and you, Kelly, were basically teaching a class on resilience and grace and fortitude. So we're just going to have you back so you can do my job for me. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so we talked about, geez, we talked about your early parentification as a child because your mom as an addict was not resourced to parent um, about being in the system and adopted and different incidents of abuse, we even spontaneously stumbled upon um, a place in your narrative where we could extract an EMDR target. And we talked about EMDR, a little bit about how that works, and the negative cognition that that we were um, working around in that conversation was I am weak. The feeling of, you know, any... I From what I remember, not from my notes, but from my memory, is that things that feel to you now, things that are likely to trigger for you, I am weak, are likely things that involve you taking care of yourself. That was kind of where I was. Do you think that that's true? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Okay. 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 So that sort of where I was, was around those ideas because the one of the last things you said to me that really stuck with me, and I love the way this is phrased, is what is self-care that actually works, Right. Because, like, the next person who thinks they're going to resolve somebody's trauma responses with walks around the block and hot baths gets kicked in the teeth, right? Like, that's just not what we're talking about. I'm not saying those things aren't great. Everybody who follows me on Instagram knows I'm, like, a bath junkie and I can't end my day without one. So, like, absolutely those are lovely self-care items. Movement is paramount, super important. Walking's probably the best of all of them. Like, I'm not disparaging either of those practices, but you have some complicated history. And so getting to a place where you can feel good because you're taking care of yourself such that it allows your mind and your body and your soul to feel good, for you, that's kind of tricky because it feels like you're the weakness coming from the idea that you're really here to take care of other people, like your mom, right? When that gets inverted for you young, it's really hard to come out of that paradigm. So why don't you tell us just what's been on your mind since we left off there? Well, I kind of, I started to take a look at 
you know, actually writing down those tools that used to work for me and those, you know, self-care activities that I found joy in at some point in my life, but, you know, don't find really now and kind of, you know, split them up in like what, uh, you know, to me feels kind of like unhealthy. That still comes with a lot of guilt after the activity is done. It always feels good in the moment, but the aftermath and then also, you know, what I think in my head is what I should be doing as self-care, but really feels more like work. And then trying to kind of figure out what do I really enjoy doing that doesn't fall under any of those categories. And I guess trying them again, but, you know, I still feel like I'm just repeating the same old game over and over again of, picking up old habits or trying to start new ones that don't stick and feeling like I'm in the same spot every single time. Yep. Yep. And you said, uh, you know, what do I really enjoy? And what I think about when I hear that is that one of the first things that that childhood trauma takes from us is play and knowing how to play, right? It's sort of like once that trauma is really entrenched in our tissue, it's there's there's that hypervigilance removes the ability to play. And for adults who have childhood trauma and actually I I don't even think it has to be childhood trauma. There I think you and I stumbled upon this idea the first time we talked. I think I mentioned that there's only two things that cause suffering, right? Trauma and capitalism. <laughs> That's it. Everybody's problems are one of those two things. And in this case, capitalism is a big culprit too, right? The idea that we're supposed to be productive all the time and that it, what why are you doing that sort of question, right? And play is antithetical to why. That's exactly the point, right? There isn't a goal. There isn't. It's just you want to. It comes from your body. It doesn't come from your left brain. It doesn't come from deciding how to use your time. So I think those of us who have trauma histories and who are living in a capitalist culture, it's really, really tricky to figure out what we actually like. It's not something that's tapping into some sort of achievement distraction or anything like that. So it makes perfect sense what you're saying. Can you tell me some of those things that used to work? Yeah. I mean, I at one point I did really enjoy journaling and I really liked the self-reflection part of going back to it later. But then it started to feel like a chore. And so I started, you know, I've had my fair share of trying meditation, which at at some point still does work, but I would say 70% of the time does not. And then some of my other ones were, you know, shopping, spending money, (laughs) (laughs) going out to eat, you know, these, these things that feel good in the moment, the relaxing, yeah, doing nothing, watching TV all day. Um, I, I love cleaning and organizing and there is a lot of joy that I get from that, but I find myself doing it when my brain is more scrambled and it's more of like a grounding exercise for me more than anything. That makes perfect sense. Um, so a couple things about these journaling people, so many of my clients journal and so many of them reap amazing benefits from it. I'm a therapist. And I'm a writer, like I've worked as a writer. I don't do it. It does not help me. And it's not because I don't think it's helpful. I think it's like huge for other people. But I've never really benefited much from it. That's probably not true. I've never done it enough to benefit from it. There's something about it that, like you, it feels like a task to me. I'm not compelled to do it organically. So it's just feels laborious. Um, But I do think that one works for a lot of people. But my point here is that I think that all of these things are very, need to be very individualized, which brings us to meditation. When I work on meditation with clients, it has to sort of, I think, to be effective for new meditators. To really get people into the practice, it needs to be customized. Like, what are you working on and how should you be meditating? And so when I hear that cleaning brings you calm, I think, okay, well, there's the external order tends to put a balm over internal chaos factor. But there's also the fact that I don't know, I'm I'm projecting here because this is how it is for me. I find cooking and cleaning to be meditative. I I don't always find like when I used to run, that wasn't exactly meditative. I was thinking. People often tell me they clear their brain when they exercise. And then when I ask them, what are you thinking about? They're thinking about things. 
So it's not really clearing your brain. It's sort of scratching the itch of I should be thinking all the time, right? So the things that can become meditative are those things that have like a, like a physical rhythm, you know, almost like, a, like, a, like an internalized choreography, the way that cooking and cleaning do. So we can talk a little bit later about specifically how to come up with moving meditations maybe that would be easier for you. Because it seems like the sitting still and trying to focus on only one thing is not working for you, right? Yeah, and I, you know, there's other things that I do also enjoy, like knitting and sewing that is kind of repetitive um, or coloring, you know, where it's, I'm really only focusing on the task because it's a little bit more complicated than cleaning or organizing something that feels you know, repetitive in the sense that I can think about other things while I'm doing that. But with knitting and sewing, you know, those are exercises that I have to think really hard about or I screw up. And I'm really, you know, I could be a perfectionist. And then that's where I kind of get frustrated. And then I give up. I'm like, I'm not going to do this project anymore. This loop looks like shit. I can't get it right. And now I have nothing to, you know, say at the end, look what I did and, and feel proud about it. So you know, it's like, how, how do I find, you know, take these things and run with them and love them the whole time and not just a very small percent of the time. Right. So that's exactly my point where play is concerned, is that anytime there is a desired outcome, a very specific goal, it stops being playful. Right. So that's what you're talking about. Like with the crocheting, people often bring up knitting for me when I talk to them about play. And the problem with knitting is, well, you're making something. So there's a way to do it not right. And that automatically, that's completely antithetical to play. There is no not right. Whatever you're doing is right. Whatever you feel like you want to do is right. So knitting is definitely not going to be, especially for people with perfectionistic tendencies, but really for anybody, an actual meditation. Although it is, it's, it's technically meditative in the sense that you are thinking about only one thing. But I think where it stops being meditative is that then there be, there comes in like analysis and evaluation. And that's what takes the meditation part out of it. Shopping. Look, I mean, that's <laughs> just like that's like just darts of dopamine. Right. I mean, it's one of my favorites. One of my favorite dysfunctional ways to make myself feel good is to buy stuff because I love me some dopamine. Um so, yeah, that one makes sense. And if you are independently wealthy, maybe it's harmless <laughs> or, you <laughs> right. know, if you're buying sus- all sustainable products. But it definitely isn't the most adaptive, right? Uh, the most, it's not the most sustainable for most of us. Uh, watching TV, that one, you know, it's a tricky one because for some people, watching TV is sort of a depressive uh, activity. You know, like I can't get off the couch. I don't feel like doing anything. I have the TV on. But for some of us, especially those of us who have different attention styles, who need some of our senses stimulated in order to calm our nervous systems down. I'm one of those people. My sister is my sister. Jeez, that was totally strange because I meant to say my son. Um. I don't I don't know. We can talk about my stuff later because that's clearly some sort of issue um, because I do it frequently. But this is not my session. Um, But my point is that I actually do relax by watching TV and I will die on this hill. People want to argue with me about this all the time. I have the TV on frequently when I'm not actually watching it. It's occupying some the, the sort of the my hearing that that part of my sensory register that sort of allows the rest of me to calm down, but for a lot of people, it's more of a sort of you know numbing activity. So that's with stuff like that, it's kind of like you know what's happening. Are you numbing out, or are you just sort of getting into a state where you can actually relax? Which is it? Which is it now for you when you do it? I would say both, but lately I've been watching more like funny things or educational things and having them on in the background and then doing other stuff. And it it does seem to kind of like, and if it's not that it's a podcast that I'm listening to, or I have like this, you know, awful thing where I leave my TikTok open and it's just replaying over and over and over again while I do something else. Um, So that definitely resonates with me that I, you know, I, I do have sound on in the background to kind of, 
chill and relax and do some other tasks that I need to get done. Right, right. With podcasts and with things like that, once you're thinking, right, we're, what we're going to want to do is eventually get you to a place where you can be without thinking. But right now that's uncomfortable and that's totally normal. That's exactly the point. That's where hypervigilance comes in. And, you know, that's the cornerstone symptom of any post-traumatic stress. So it makes perfect sense. So I think what we want to think about is, to your question, what's the self-care that works? Like the meditations, self-care, in my experience, is very, it has to be individualized. There's no, this is going to work for everybody. There are certain things that will help everyone feel better, but they're not necessarily right for any one person at a specific time. So for you, what comes up for me around self-care is that given your trauma history, given how much work you've done, given how much of this work has been cognitive in terms of figuring things out and understanding, you know, patterns in your family and, you know, making your peace with your mom and doing all of the sort of like very subtle discernment involved in processing this stuff. You've done so much work and it's been real heady. Yeah, definitely. So we want to go in the opposite direction. And so I, I, if I'm thinking of designing self-care practices for you, I'm thinking first of all, okay, this needs to be working on embodiment, getting out of the head. And then the second thing I'm thinking is that you are a parentified child who from what I remember, still is compelled to take care of everybody else. I mean, you're a social worker, so right there. <laughs> Do you feel that that's true? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's my right. purpose, Renee. <laughs> I know, Kelly. <sighs> I know it feels, and it might, you know what? It might be. It might be that your purpose is to heal and to nurture and to, and that is absolutely valid and fucking beautiful but then we not but and then we still need to find a way for you to do that while keeping your own well full right yeah. that's the, the that's the that's the charge yeah. right libra there's the balance <laughs> <laughs> we're going to fulfill your astrological destiny libra woman and find you some balance oh, okay so given given that you were parentified that you are still uh, uh, sort of, you know, I don't, what is it that people say that I don't like? I don't like people pleaser. That one's just, I hate that phrase. I don't like, I, I don't like people thinking of themselves that way, even though it, I shouldn't have any feeling about how other people think of themselves, but it drives me crazy. I'm going to say nurturer, right? But nurturer without boundaries is the problem. It's not the activity that's wrong. It's not that you want to help and nurture and heal that and pathologizing the, the the desire to make other people feel good, I think, is stupid, right? It's 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 the how, it's the unboundaried giving that we want to work on. The single most important step in the reparenting process, which is where, if I if you were my client, that's where where I'd have us. Like we need to start the reparenting process is the development of a morning routine. It is. I, there's a, some slides of mine in my Instagram account. If anybody wants real specific information on this, um, it this changed my life. It's changed every client who does it says the same thing. The rules for morning routines when we when you're using them in a sort of uh, tr childhood trauma healing endeavor, excuse me, are that it needs to be no more than 15 minutes long and something that's good for you that you will do every day first thing in the morning before you look at your phone or take care of anything else. So currently, what do you do when you open your eyes in the morning? What What's the sort of order of events after that? Um, I sit on my phone for like ah! 15 <laughs> minutes until I get the courage and it's to so, actually yep. get up and do something. <laughs> right. So you are starting your day with an assault on your nervous system, basically, which it's easy for people who have unresolved trauma and therefore, you know, overactive nervous systems not to notice that because we're accustomed to feeling kind of jacked up like that. So but definitely we're going to want to change that. Those those 15 minutes are the minutes that we're targeting. Right. If you want to go on your your phone after the routine, Go for it. But eventually you will find that you don't want to, that you'll avoid it rather than automatically going to it because you're sort of resetting your default. So we can come up with whatever will be best for you. I will tell you that the starter 
recommendation for me with clients is to get 16 ounces of room temperature water, squeeze a lemon in it, and then sit wherever you feel the most comfortable and do three minutes of box breathing. The reason I prescribe that is because almost everybody needs gut healing. It's so, so connected to our emotions, particularly anxiety and depression. And the lemon water flush in the morning is sort of the, you know, foundational step around gut work. And then the box breathing is the most efficient way to regulate your nervous system first thing in the morning, even more so than meditation for that duration of time. So also for people who can't meditate, you don't have to, right? So that's what I start people with. But... It can be anything you want that's good for you that you think you will do as soon as you wake up in the morning. And it doesn't have to be more than five minutes. It just has to be fewer than 15. What sounds like it would work for you? I mean, those two things you mentioned are very doable and, and seem like, you know, it wouldn't feel like too much of a chore. Right. I, I tend to have like a little bit of a routine after that, the, the phone I'll get up and I, you know, I put my plants back in their windowsill and I open up all the blinds uh, and I start coffee and that sort of thing. So, you know, it's like just changing it from after, you know, the phone to before I, I, I already feel like that could be yeah. really, you yep. know, Changing and me. having the water and the box breathing before you start doing things that are kind of taking care of the home. And I would imagine coffees for both of you and, you know, like you're nurturing the plants. The part of the magic of the morning routine is that it is teaching the traumatized brain that doesn't know how to prioritize its own needs that you get to take care of yourself every day before you do anything else. Like so the magic is in the repetition and the practice, the practice of no matter what, I'm going to have this time before anybody else gets taken care of that I take care of myself. And that really goes a long way to change that wiring for those of us who really struggle to meet our own needs or at least to meet them before we meet others' needs. So having that little block of time that's just for yourself and then you'll sort of naturally flow into this opening up the day that sounds beautiful, and I think you probably will find you're not compelled to get your phone in the middle. And if you are, that's okay. That's all right. And speaking of box breathing, let's take a breathwork break. Remember, uh, box breathing goes like this. Don't do it yet. You're going to inhale through your nose, slow six count. Hold your breath, slow six count. Exhale through your mouth, slow six count, and hold your breath, slow six count, and then you do it again. Okay, so I'll count you through. Remember the inhale is through your nose, the exhale is through your mouth, you're holding your breath in between, and I highly recommend placing your hand on your lower belly because it's really important to try, and this takes some practice, so don't worry if it isn't happening for you yet, just, just practice. On the inhale, only your lower belly should move. If you if you manage to fill that up before the count is over, then you'll start to pull into, you know, the upper part of your belly and your chest. But you want to make sure you pull first into your lower abdomen. And p putting your hand there makes it easier to focus on that spot. Okay, so we're going to start, remember, with an inhale through your nose. I'll count. You do inhale, hold, exhale, hold. Ready? And take a big inhale through your nose. Two, three, four, five, six. Hold your breath. Two, three, four, five, six. Exhale. Two, three, four, five, six. Hold your breath. Two, three, four, Five, six, inhale, two, three, four, five, six, hold your breath, two, three, four, five, six, out through your mouth, two, three, four, five, six, hold your breath, two, three, four, five, 
six. Inhale, two, three, four, five, six. Hold your breath, two, three, four, five, six. Exhale, two, three, four, five, six. Hold your breath, two, three, four, five, six. Good job. I was in a zone there. <laughs> Seriously, it was kind of rhythmic, yeah? It had that vibe to it. I was nodding my head to it. <laughs> Were you? Yeah, I was waiting for like a, like a musical. <laughs> that was, yeah. Me, <laughs> that's stoned box breathing for you. It does, man. It's good shit. All right. So, Kelly, we were talking about self-care, what's really going to work, and about de- the developing a morning routine so that um, you're addressing the trauma work from the perspective of reparenting, but also your nervous system from the perspective of the breath work. So what are some other ideas that have been kicking around in your head in this last week pertinent to what we discussed? ideas for self-care or any of it yep any of it well I think I've definitely paid a little bit more attention to you know the way my body is responding at work this last week um you know I had a a number of interviews again with children and families and uh you know the secondary trauma doesn't stop it just you know every week it's like a new wave of kiddos and family struggling around me. And I, you know, tried to be a little bit more mindful about what I did after and not trying to busy my brain or uh, jump right into the next task. I, you know, have a horrible (laughs) uh, habit of not eating during the day because I get so busy or, you know, I don't want to stop in the middle of a project. Um, And so I've been trying this last week to actually feel my body with some food after interviews and just kind of like ask myself, how am I really feeling right now? What is it about that interaction that was most, you know, unsettling for me? Um, You know, just trying to be a little bit more self-reflective rather than just kind of jump over it and, and hide it and stuff it and just move on to the next stuff. So that's kind of what's been going on with me. And I, you know, I'm looking at my list next to me that I wrote out of all this self-care stuff and practices that I've enjoyed. And and I kind of keep going back to these spiritual practices that, you know, I, I haven't always been very, you know, consistent or about or, um, you know, had a ritual around, but when I do them, um, and some of them are like tarot spreads yep, yep. and jar spells yep. and, um, you know, a lot of my own breath work and, you know, certain mantras that I repeat back to myself. And, and I, I always have found comfort in them and don't always feel like there's a task or like a right or wrong way to start or end or pause. Um, and so, you know, I find that I'm a little bit more interested this week in like getting back into that, or at least taking a look at, you know, what I was doing before and expanding on it. Um, so I'm, I'm finding myself a little bit more in that spiritual realm for sure. Okay. Super meaty as always, Kelly. Thank you. This is again, makes a ton of sense and is probably the first part of that, uh, about the sort of going and going all day, the not eating, that part is where I'm going to go first, because that is actually probably where I would have gone next if I were directing the conversation. Um, This is a thing. I think we probably spoke a little bit last time about how the body gets addicted to its own stress hormones, right? So when I hear about someone who's just going, going, going in a high stress situation all day, you know, you're pumping cortisol and adrenaline, and norepinephrine, and that's what your nervous system is used to and has been used to since you were really, really young because you were in a high-stress state so early in your life, and it went on for quite a long time and then continued at least intermittently until, you know, you got to the point in your life that you really started to sort these things out. That's a long time. Your nervous system got really beat up. So 
it's used to that sensation, that deprivation, you know, the, the, the hunger that gets sort of like almost physiologically motivating after a while, that sort of buzzy energy that's tired and wired, you know, is the phrase you'll hear a lot for that. And so and I think you you basically told me what I would have recommended in terms of doing these sort of check-ins with your body. And what I often recommend people do is set alarms in their phone for two or three times during the workday or during the day that just say, you know, check in or whatever will remind you. And to just take a few moments to do, you don't even have to do box breathing, but just like, you know, a really focused inhale through the nose, belly up and long exhale out of the mouth, belly down. Just a good one of those to sort of get into your body. And then the practice is to just ask your body, what do I need? Just see if you can get your body to tell you. It doesn't quite happen in the beginning, but I promise it eventually does. And so this is both addressing this kind of, you know, abuse to your nervous system during the day, as well as kind of teaching you how to let your body tell you what it needs. I most of the time when I do it, my body tells me water. I'm I don't drink enough water. That's like a, my cross to bear. I force it, but it's never enough. So but sometimes it'll be like, you know, you need to just go sit in a dark corner for five minutes. Or sometimes it'll be like you need to go for a walk or you need to eat or, you know, you need to just get that work done. Sometimes that's the answer, too. But it's about kind of just taking a moment to check in, take your pulse even, you know, try to feel your body, do a sensory scan. What are the things that I see, that I smell, that I taste, that I can feel with my hands? Just take a moment to get back into your body and ask it for what it needs. And if you get in the habit of doing that several times a day, it will start to generalize. Does that make sense? It's kind of what totally. you said. I'm yeah. like, I'm telling you what you already know because you just told me that's basically what you're doing anyway. And I'm like, yeah, okay, here's what you should do. You're like, yeah, thanks, bitch. I just told you that myself. Um, finding <laughs> where the feelings live in your body, which, again, is something you basically just mentioned, that's also critical to the healing process, right? So g getting away from the habit of thinking about how you feel and getting into the habit of feeling without analysis or evaluation. You know, not like, oh, no, I'm depressed again. What's wrong with me? But just, huh. I got that sort of hollow feeling in my chest that I get when I'm depressed. Hmm. Wonder what that's about. And just leave it. You know, like using curiosity instead of anything else. And just kind of focusing on the sensations in your body, sending breath there, using visualizations to loosen it up, whatever. But instead of pulling it up into your head and intellectualizing it, which only you know, grows legs on it and entrenches it. So trying to keep the focus to your body, which again is sort of what you told me you're working on doing. Yeah. Definitely. Yes. And yes. then, because again, Kelly, it's like, I swear it sounds like I gave you a script. Um, the spiritual practices part, you know, we have four quads. We have our intellectual quad our cognitive quad, however you want to call it, our emotional quad, our physical quad, and our spiritual quad. And in this country, we're pretty good at intellectual, physical, and we're getting good at emotional. But we, we're really behind, most of us, in our spiritual quad development. So you seem to be addressing the other three regularly. And so I'd agree it seems like this is the place where you'd want to focus your fortification into your point because it makes you feel good, Right. And spiritualization, more than anything, is super individual. Um, I want to hear from you just because you're really smart and I'm interested in how you're going to explain this. If somebody didn't understand what spirituality was, how would you explain it? Oof. It's Jesus. not a quiz. It's not a quiz. I just think you're smart and interesting, and I want to have a conversation about it. It's not a quiz. Oh, yeah. I, I really relate it to my subconscious and... Oh God, the, the higher dimension, the higher vibrational piece of me that lives somewhere I don't know about, and I'm trying to pull her down. Um, but for me, you know, there, there's no morality. It's more about purpose. A lot of times for me is purpose and, and just overall beliefs. What do I believe about me what do I believe about the world around me and mm -hmm. how how do I serve both in an honorable way yeah well, that's a good way to put it I always think to about it as like belief or reverence for something bigger than the self 
right? And so for some people, that's a deity. And for some people, it's nature. And for some people, it's connection. And for some, you know, and I think it can be a lot of different things for a lot of different people. And from the way that you put it, it's sort of making, like I said, putting a finer point on that and talking about how the belief in whatever that larger principle or whatever those larger principles are, the belief in that as being more important to the self, how are you practicing that is sort of what your version of it is asking, right? Or how are you living that? How are yeah. you embodying that yourself? How are you bringing that into your life? I don't know that. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yes. Yeah, okay, because that's where the, like, morality and the purpose comes in. What are you doing about it, right? So, yep, exactly. yep, yep. So it just seems like an expansion of mine being a much simpler idea. But again, it doesn't it, – you can have a definition, right? You can go look it up in the dictionary. But the point is, what does it mean for each individual person? And it's basically, if you put sort of your de definition and mine next to each other, it's just about getting out of your ego, Yeah. Oh, 100%. Right. Getting, yes. getting out of your ego, getting out of your sort of conscious and literal and earthly mind, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. So this will be different things for different people. And for a lot of people, spirituality involves – my spiritual practices rely very heavily on meditation, very heavily on meditation because I have a – I have a pretty solid relationship with it now it took me a long time I mean I didn't even think it worked 10 years ago I would roll my eyes at it but now that's a really big part of it for me um but but psychedelics are for me too have been a really important part of my spiritual development and I know are for some other people so, and then I heard you talking about these more mystical practices that are highly spiritual and also super interesting I don't know as much about them my kid does and um I get my hair colored at a place in Petaluma called the moon room and it's owned by these three sisters who are super witchy they're such badasses one of them just had a baby congratulations Desiree, welcome to the world, Paisley. Um, but uh, they do a lot of these ceremonies. Um, I'd maybe drag them on someday to talk about them. But why don't you tell me what jar spells are? I know what tarot readings are, but I've never heard of, and I know mantras, right? Uh, what are jar spells? Yeah. So I, you know, there are herbs and flowers and other elements that you can add in for different things that you want to focus on. So the last one I did was a, a finance jar, money jar, because, you know, times have been hard. We sadly had to put our dog down and with that oh, came up, sorry. <laughs> that bill. Yes. And it's just, you know, shit you don't want to have to worry about after losing a loved one. Um, but, you know, for me, it, it, it allows me to, it brings the power to me while also putting the power out there and opening myself up to opportunities and so there are things that I put in this jar and there are mantras that I say and certain incenses that I light um, that kind of go along with certain areas, love or self-care or, yeah, fertility is another one. Um, but just putting them in the jar, keeping them in certain locations or, you know, if it's getting rid of something bad, you know, digging it into the ground or, you know, flushing it somewhere, hiding it somewhere, um, different things that go along with different areas that I want to kind of fixate on. Yeah, okay. It does. And you saying that brings something up for me in terms of another way for people to sort of access the idea of spirituality. And incidentally, that is fascinating. I'm really fascinated by that stuff. Um, I think that if for those people who want a more theoretical sort of bookish way to approach spirituality. What popped up for me, and I think it also popped up because you and I talked about Maslow last time, didn't we talk about the Maslow hierarchy? Right, yes, right? we did. So from, from a not-so-limited perspective, one could talk about spirituality as being the self-actualization needs, right? Because... They tend the self-actualization needs, according to Maslow, were aspirational. Nobody ever like finishes that stage, right? That hierarchy of needs is never like that. The needs aren't all met, as with the others where you move through, right? But these are sort of an ongoing aspirational set of explorations and endeavors, and they focus on things like, you know, symmetry and order and beauty. And so 
it's interesting because it gives it sort of a more concrete, like I said, narrative bookish explanation, but also because it highlights the fact that one can't always be expected to focus on those endeavors when things like physical and emotional safety are not in place, right? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why it's taken me a long time. You know, my biological mom was a very spiritual person. Um, Now she is incredibly religious and, you know, she struggles with schizophrenia and there's this, a lot of damage that's been done. And um, growing up though, we were very much open to, you know, the idea of things bigger and broader beyond us that aren't related directly to God or Christianity. And and I think that I was always kind of interested in them, but never really ran with them in the way that I think that I have now. Um, and realizing that I connected so strongly with those beliefs and those systems and along the way kind of lost that or found other things to believe in that didn't really stick. And so for me, it's, it is healing to go back to something that, I connected right, with right, 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 right. Yeah, there's realize. like a like a circular experience coming back around to it. That's nice. That makes sense. Do, would you say that these were things that were these practices or ideas were more tangible and active in your household when you were younger and your mom was healthier? Is that your memory? I, you know, I don't know that I really knew my mom as healthy or healthier. You know, that that I think as I got older, I tried to dismiss a lot of those beliefs or values that she had because, you know, mom's crazy, mom's, you know, mom's high, mom's out of her mind. You know, those can't be real. You know, I can't believe that, you know, I used to think about those things. And and then now realizing, oh, my gosh, like in my eyes, she was right all, all the way around. Um, and and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful, um, you know, and I and I had to go through those you know, that phase, you know, of, of being really angry and denying and, um, you know, trying to make sure everything she said or did was wrong. And, and now I feel like I've kind of taken those things and, and really learned about them and value them in a lot of ways. Okay, that lovely sentiment from Kelly, I think, is a really good place to stop and take a mindfulness break. Wherever you are, you're going to sort of hyper-focus on your surroundings. You know, I say sort of a lot. I think I realized that in this episode. I say sort of a lot, and I'm curious about that. I think I think sort of, I think I say it a lot because I speak so sort of authoritatively that I think sort of softens it. Like, I speak like I know I'm totally right 100% of the time, but really just sort of, right? I mean, I think that's why I'm doing it. I think it's defensive, like... Don't call me on it because I said sort of, which is just stupid. So I'm going to try not to do that anymore. Maybe we make a sound effect that you can hit every time I say it that's, like, obnoxious. No, because then everybody has to hear the obnoxious sound effect. Forget it. Okay, so we're going to try to notice three very specific things for each of the senses. Just taking in what's around you and really, really focusing on it specifics of it, details of it, starting with sight. So three things that catch your eye, three things that you see, really, really focus on the visual experience of them. Once you've seen three things, really seen them, move on to sound. What do you hear? I'm in a really quiet space, so I have to listen really intently. If you're in a noisy one, this one goes by a lot faster. What do you hear? And now, what can you feel? You can touch something deliberately, or just what do you feel on your skin? What does the air feel like? Once you have three things that you have felt, then go on to smell. Can you smell three things? This one can be challenging. If you can, really take in the smell. And once you have three, then you're going to move on to taste. Now, depending where you are, this one can be hard. If you're sitting on the ground outside with nothing to eat or drink, you know, 
Maybe you can't taste three things. Just inside your own mouth. Have you had coffee? Sometimes I could taste that. Whatever you taste, you don't have to have three. It's not a mastery endeavor. So now just run through a few of them in your head. Look around. Tune into the sound. Take another whiff. Remember where you are. All right, we're done. Talking about about this idea of, you know, having it having it be hard to access spiritual practices and certain types of self-care when there's unresolved trauma sort of brings me back around to one of the things you brought up earlier when we were sort of taking an overview, which was this ongoing issue of the vicarious trauma at your job, right? And so can you tell anybody who might not remember from the first episode a little more about what you do? Yeah, I work for a mentoring agency and I do enrollment. So I'm doing all the intake for not just our volunteers that are mentors, um, but the children that are in the program and their families that are enrolling them. And so part of that is, you know, an in-person interview um, where we kind of go all, you know, all about those things, school, health, um, home life, family relationships, um, you know, a lot of youth development stuff and just kind of get an idea of where this kid's at and what kind of mentor would best, you know, meet their needs and their wants. So it's like, you know, Costco of triggers, basically. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, okay. that's, uh, exactly. Giant yeah. mayonnaise jar full of everything that hurt you when you were a child. Take your pick. Yeah, that sounds pretty re-traumatizing. Fortunately for everybody involved, you're so on it with your work. I do expect that you have you know, you, you have some practices for keeping yourself healthy while you're doing this, but we want to think about the fact that like we're, like we were saying, it makes it a little harder to really internalize the spiritual practices when wounds are getting popped open or scabs are coming off. So what, what are the things that you do to sort of get that everybody else's distress out of your system when you leave work? Do you have practices for that? No. And I think that's kind of, you know, where I'm struggling is that I used to, I used to be really imaginative where, you know, we put it in the jar and we lock the jar up and we throw the jar out the fucking window and we never think about the jar again. And, you know, we, we tie locks around the jar and, you know, it's, it's an unbreakable jar, nothing you can do, right, you know, right, right, and, right. And it's just, I, yeah, there's no fucking no, jar. It no, doesn't work. No, no the jar. jar breaks no jar. If I even look at it wrong, you know, so I don't, I don't. And that's kind of where I'm like, gosh, how do I compartmentalize this? You know, even before I walk out the office would be awesome. But just in general, even if it's something I do while I'm home, um, something to, you know, get rid of it, dust it off. Okay. That absolutely. It's. The, I know that thing of, you know, put it. And in fact, I think I've talked to somebody about that on the show. But like, you know, get a little box, put it in. That works for like, um, that's better for anxieties about like, oh, things I have to do at work. Not every day I'm confronted with the, you know, archetype of child suffering. You know what I mean? Like, I don't even know what that means. That's that. <laughs> That sounded right, but that's not at all what I meant to say. But you get my picture. I'm just putting words together that don't really go together. But the point is, it's it's big existential pain. It's not, I might have forgotten to send that memo. You know, those are the kind of things you want to put in the box with the lid and all of that. So I think from my experience that this is best addressed with energy medicine interventions and Energy medicine stuff, along with meditation, is the stuff I used to, like, roll my eyes at. Like, people would say chakra, and, like, I'd get vomit in my throat. And then back when I was super sick, this doctor that basically saved my life, and I didn't tell – I mean, I don't know. Do I get to talk about her without her giving me permission? I guess we'll find out. Her name is Jackie Chan, and it's a blonde white woman, so I need to tell everybody that. I say that every time I talk about her. Jackie Chan's a blonde white woman. She's a D.O., she works as a naturopath in Larkspur and some other sites at a uh, Marin Natural Medicine Clinic, I think. But she saved my life when I was super, super sick. And whenever I would come to her office, uh, there was a time when I was seeing her like every two weeks for, you remember, Josh, this is, you remember all this. Josh was around in the sick days. Um, and I would come to her office and she would sort of wince and go, 
Renee, every time you come here, there's like 20 inner children inside of you and none of them is you. What are you doing to get that out of you? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, get them out of me. That's how I work is by getting them in me so I can listen to them. You know, she's like, no, bitch, you're a mess. So she convinced me to take this energy medicine class she was teaching over a weekend that was designed for healers. So designed for social workers and therapists and body workers and all of this. And Jackie Chan is a brilliant woman, very well educated and was very smart to set up the weekend such that the first day she rolled out for us a bunch of MIT research on like electromagnetic fields and shit. Basically, I think I was the only cynic there. Everybody else already knew their chakras or whatever. I was the one who was like, what are you even talking about? But for me, it was really important. It really did dial down my cynicism and left me a lot more open to what she was talking about. And I learned a couple of interventions from her that have been critical for me. Clients have had a ton of success with them too. And one of them actually is a meditation that she gave me. I don't know if she came up with it, if she got it from someone else. I have an audio file of it, so I'll send it to you when we talk offline for sure. Um, And sometime on the air, maybe I'll do it. I'll go through it with people. But basically the meditation is one that you do at night. So you're lying down and it's guided. It'll tell you what to do. And you sort of create a sanctuary around yourself. And then there you visualize an actual moat around the sanctuary. And then you put everybody else whose energy you're holding on the other side of the moat, your clients, anybody in your family who might be thinking about maybe if there's a friend you're stressed out about anybody else that you're worrying about, or like I said, their energy's gotten tangled up in yours, you put them on the other side of the moat, right? That's a great, great meditation for clearing people out of your field at the end of the day. It works really, I do it almost every day because of, according to Jackie Chan, the 20 older children in me all the time. Like to sort of, I call it getting my clients out of me, right? I put them all on the other side of the moat. So that one works really well. The other thing that I think might be really helpful to you because well, I should ask you rather than assuming, which is one of my specialties. I have a PhD in assumption. Um, do you find that you get mad at the parents? Oh, gosh. Is... <laughs> Fuck you. Uh, I, I, so I, I did early on. Yes. Early yeah, on. Yeah. And I had to do so much self-reflection oh, around it's that. It's so hard. It's, oh, I still it's struggle with it. incredibly hard. Yes. Yes. So, I'm definitely um, think, you know, my perspective is a little bit different now. And so I think I have a more rational, healthy way of like looking at what the facts are, you know, what, you know, the whole person, what are all the things that they've struggled with, you know, remembering my past that this person might have one similar aspect to my mom, but that doesn't make her my mom or her mistake. You know, I, I have to really walk myself through it. Because, yeah, I do. I did, for sure. Yep, I still do. Well, I think you and I talked about the neutral. Was it with you? Was it with Rachel or with Kelly that I talked about neutral separation? The five things that you like, you know, you have brown hair, I have blonde hair. Didn't I talk about that or did I dream it? I think you dreamt it. I dreamt it. That's cool. I do that. So there's an this is another Jackie Chan, blonde Jackie Chan specialty, um, an exercise she taught during that. Uh, class called neutral separation and this one I mean this is one of the most used tools in my toolbox so this is for keeping people out of your energetic field so that there are sort of two main categories of people that this works best with and one is someone who's triggering who's like just those people who they may not even be doing anything that bad, but they're just getting under your skin. They just fucking, it's usually like, you know, for people, it's like, I hear it a lot with like their parents or their in-laws, or maybe it's like a coworker and it's just, they just fucking bug me, get under my skin. So those people, but also when you can't get somebody else's feelings out of you, right? So those of us who have like, Low differentiation, right? Like those of us who follow our partner's mood. You know, if my partner's in a anxious, I feel anxious. And if he's in a bad mood, I'm I don't feel comfortable. But if he's in a good mood, I feel okay. And we sort of follow other people's feelings or just, you know, I sometimes have trouble if I'm throwing a party or have people over that I I get sort of hyper focused on the person who looks like they're not having a good time. 
and I'm like projecting all of these things that I think they're feeling and I can't really focus. Like, so that's another example of like somebody else's energy is either getting in my stuff or I think it's getting in my stuff. Right. Um, so for you or well, for me, too, with work, sometimes with clients, you know, people who are maybe still really swimming in their projective identification stuff and, you know, their their energy's unbounded and they're trying to push their stuff into you subconsciously. Or like you're saying, when it's just kind of triggering and a little too close, so it gets in, you know, like what you're just narrating, like this isn't my mom. So for all of these types of experiences, this works really well. So neutral separation goes like this. It sounds outrageously simple, too simple to have any big effect, and it is magic. You tell yourself out loud if you want or in your head five ways that you and the triggering person differ. When this was taught to me, I did it this way. I was like, we were doing, Jackie's teaching it to me. We're doing it with my mom. And the first difference I said was, well, I'm honest about myself and she's delusional. And Jackie's like, no, Renee, you want five concrete objective differences like she has brown hair, I have blonde hair because I did at the time. So I do this a lot with a whole bunch of different people in my life. Um, and I can do it with my husband because I am one of those people who I I might uh, like let his mood get into me too much. So when I do it with my husband, I say, and you have to say all the things. You can't just say like, we have different eyes, we have different hair. So when I do it with my husband, it goes like this. He has blue eyes. I have brown eyes. He's bald. I have hair. He's blonde. I'm a brunette. He's under 50. I'm over 50. He drives a truck. I drive a car. Right? Like just five concrete objective things about him and me that differ. And it has this incredible effect of just reminding your whole system that everything that's going on with that person is over there. It's not yours. Like, that's an entirely separate set of experiences and energy and needs and wants and everything different, different, different. And it does. I sometimes with people to whom I'm particularly susceptible, um, moms, mother-in-laws, anybody in that sort of realm. Right. I have to do it a lot. Like maybe every half hour I'm doing it. Right. It doesn't like last forever, but it's really, really effective. So while you're working on self-care practices, it's a really good Band-Aid, even more of a Band-Aid, it's sort of like a helmet, you know, it's sort of like protective <laughs> gear, um, prophylactic for triggering people. It's a soul condom. So it's an energy <laughs> condom. It's an energy condom. That's it. That's our first piece of merchandise, energy condoms. <laughs> energy condom TM. I like it. Um, it's basically that. So those are good strategies to keep in your pocket at work. Definitely. The, the, I find that that's, I call it the sanctuary meditation. It's the night and day difference for me in how I feel after work when I do it versus how I don't. I'll be curious. I'm going to send it to you. I'll be curious to see if you have the same experience with it. Um, yeah. We've had you on the phone for a while. So, Kelly, what is on your mind that we haven't addressed that you want to talk about before we finish up today? Oh, God. <laughs> so, well, and I wanted to bring it up earlier, but, you know, and maybe bring it up now. something that you and I chat about later. Yep. But, you know, you mentioned, you know, this intellectual, emotional, physical, spiritual, and, and I do feel like I've moved through a lot of those, but I find myself going back to this physical piece of it all, the cancer, the being in recovery, um, you know, disordered eating, my relationship with food and working out. And this still feels like a very big part that's missing in my life. And I constantly go through this same cycle of really motivated, have this awesome plan, um, maybe even good for like two weeks before it drastically just burns down to the ground and I, I never look <laughs> at it again. Um, and, and it's always something I go back to of like, when I have done it and I have felt really good. I feel really good. And it's the best I've ever felt. You talking about um, like nutrition? Yeah, nutrition, sleep, moving my body, you know, my relationship with my body. These are things that, you know, I still feel like are at the forefront of my struggles right now. It's like I, you know, and life goes on and I want to make plans and I want to feel good and all of these aspects and baby steps, right. And, and trying to do one thing at a time, but I find myself never able to successfully incorporate 
you know, a good routine or plan for my physical body and, and this, you know, God forbidden body of mine that feels like it has <laughs> failed me in, in all different phases of my life. Okay, this is meaty. Okay, so a few things first. I think that you and I definitely will have a larger conversation about this. I think I would definitely like to have a conversation about this stuff on air. It doesn't you don't have to do it. It could be somebody else, but definitely I want to do a whole episode that sort of focuses on this this realm. But for now, the first thing I want to say is about uh like it, it, this, it's, it's failing, right? It fails when you go to do it. I think that you're saying your body has failed you. And I think that the first thing about the dealing in this realm with this sort of stuff is a paradigm shift, right? Two of them really are coming up for me. And the first is I get it place. What I think about is, but also you went through and recovered from cancer. Like you're ba- basically your cells were dying and you stopped them like that, you know, so that's a little taxing. So there's that. So it, fe- it and from one perspective, your body has failed you from another. Your body's fucking like crazy superhuman because it's still working. You know, it's still working. It's still keeping you above above water enough to be able to like do all of this incredible work that you've done and to continue taking care of other people and soon to continue taking care of yourself. Like that's not a light switch idea. It's not like, Oh my God, I had this conversation with Renee yesterday and all of a sudden I feel like my body's really cool. Like, no, it's just (laughs) an idea to sit with. Right. Just a, a way to think about it along with that. And this is also, there's an Instagram post on this. This is a thing that is, I think super important is This is the other paradigm shift to which I was referring. Changing the idea about doing this sort of stuff, getting out of the mind frame of discipline and into self-love. Because self-love is a practice. It's not really an internal job. Self-love, we do... The morning routine is the beginning of this, right? But it's we we do it by showing, like by, by practices, by action. So when we think about things like, okay... I'm going to get up in the morning and exercise for an hour before work, which is something I do because my job is mentally taxing. And if I didn't, I'd probably be drooling by the end of the day. So I exercise an hour every day before work. I never feel like, oh, I have to go exercise. And the reason I get up and do my lemon water and my celery juice and my exercise is because I feel fucking great. And that's what gets me to do these things. And so when you're talking about them, I hear that weariness in you that comes up when you're in the discipline paradigm, right? And so the good news is the morning routine and the learning to ask your body what it needs are how we're going to get this part going for you. Like the first part of it is instead of figuring out in your head what you're going to do to your body, let your body tell you what you need to figure out in your head. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, instead of thinking, like, I'm going to get up and work out. It's like, what does your body need? And in order for you to know, you have to start practicing talking to it. So it's there are good ways to sort of start simply with physical activity in a way that will help you connect to your body. And what I usually recommend for people are the five Tibetan rites. It's like a 15-minute practice that you do in the morning. Uh, Josh, remember I gave those to you once, right? Yeah, big fan of those. Big fan of those. Um, Are you sure about that? No, he is. Also, Josh is a cancer, so he's not always averse to dipping his toe in the feeling bad pool. So, you know, he likes to to keep it interesting is what I'm saying. Um, so I think that that's a really important, like just a mind frame thing. Right. And also to just start small, you know, but with you, there's a, it, maybe we want to get like a little bit more serious about the fact that you want, there's some physical things that you probably want to specifically address. Like how's your immune system working? Are you getting the anti-cancer nutrients into your body that you need to keep yourself healthy, right? Are you doing the things you need to do to discharge the stress? Are you doing the things you do to keep all of the systems in your body regulated such that it's easier to stay in recovery? All of that's the disordered eating, right? Sure, you can work on nutrition, but we don't want you to become, what's that phrase for people? 
like me who are too rigid about like I don't eat sugar and or orthorexic I think they call it right like yeah it's some sort of like eating disorder that people will label me with because there's certain things I won't eat but it is a very real disorder it's basically like an eating disorder around using excluding food groups or following specific diets as a way to you know restrict calories basically which is not the reason I'm doing it I don't really have it I was just being right. Is that what it is, Josh? Is that the word? Yeah. Yeah. But the point, my point being, start getting really technical and manipulative with your diet when you have a disordered eating history is a really bad idea. And I think that if you start with that morning routine, it's going to set you up to really feel that I'm doing this out of love for myself, not out of discipline. Because you're starting with something that doesn't require too much. It doesn't like it doesn't feel like a chore. It's relatively, you know, relatively effortless. So, and it feels good. When you're done with the breath work, you feel like much better than you did before you started. So it does lay a really good foundation for getting more of these practices in place. So we can talk about that, but let, I just, Kelly, you are such a godsend and an absolute goldmine for a first guest. And I just want to thank you again for giving us all of this time and all of this access to your to just your experiences in your life it's really really generous thank you so much for that oh thank you for having me again i just it's been so enjoyable and i i take a lot from it so it's been really valuable for me so i appreciate you oh thank you it's an absolute pleasure you and i will be talking very soon so say bye josh bye kelly (laughs) (laughs) goodbye josh thanks again kelly bye-bye bye I've got to leave before I stop to scream. For some love.